0: Welcome! This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Uh, My name is Kurt. I am a pastor here at Cascade. And I'm excited to be with you because we are kicking off a brand new message series this morning! (laughs) Woo! And as far as exciting things in church, that's about one of the most exciting things that you're going to get. So if you're here, that's all right. Just get used to it for a while, because this is big news in church world. New message series. Uh, So how many of you have heard or familiar with the term adulting? Yeah. Uh, Oh, I shouldn't do that. Uh, If you didn't know, so adulting just became like on the scene in 2016. I think it was uh, called like the new word. Uh, which I really appreciate. Every couple of years, Merriam-Webster, different dictionaries, they like say, this is a new word. This word kind of came up. We're changing the meanings of different things, and this is a word that's significant. And adulting, as it's described, the definition of that is to behave in an adult manner, engage in activities associated with adulthood, or to make someone behave like an adult, turn someone into an adult. Which sounds quite difficult. I don't know how you would do that. Um, witchcraft, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, but what I did was I just wanted to pull up because usually we find adulting is um, via its hashtags. It's a good way to use it or to talk about it. So I just pulled up on a day this week. This is the the top results of people using adulting. So. Uh, no, that's not true. I edited. <laughs> These aren't just the top. There's some other things people believe adulting means. Okay, so talk to my bank today, paying off my debt, getting a credit card to start building my credit, hashtag adulting, right? So if you haven't had a credit card, you're just kind of getting started in that, getting in a credit card, going through that process, something that many of you might take for granted when you had to get your first credit card, or if you're old, you had to get your first checkbook, which by the way, that's like a thing that's going away. We're like. Writing checks? Why don't you just square cash me or Venmo me? That's a strange thing They're like, no, you still write and you have to know. And every time I write 90, I'm like, is there an E in 90? Because I don't really write 90 any other time. And there's no red squiggly line to help me out. All right, uh, another example. (laughs) You know you're adulting too hard when you get excited about your new cooking pan coming in the mail. Who am I, hashtag adulting? We also have renewed my driver's license, DL. I mean, I'm making some assumptions. I renewed my driver's license and registered to vote, hashtag adulting. And finally, since I don't have to work this Friday, I decided to utilize my free time by making an optometrist appointment and dental appointment, adulting. So if you get the idea, these are like the things that when you are an adult, when you grow up, the responsibilities you start taking on that previously you didn't. And the reason why we wanted to use that kind of language to talk about this is we wanna have a conversation about maturity. What does it mean to mature? What does it mean to grow up? Because uh, as I'm sure most of you know, maturity is something that is helped by age, but age does not create it. Many people get older. Not everyone gets more mature. And what that looks like is that means that maturity is something that as you get older, there are more adult activities, things and responsibilities you start taking on that can help you become more mature, but they don't necessarily mean you are more mature. So part of what this is exciting for us in a church context is it means that God gives us the ability to work on our maturity. It's a process that we can foster. It's something that we can be intentional about. There are practices that we step into that allow us to see more of who we were created to be and have a different orientation towards the world. And we're going to be looking at scripture today. We're going to be looking at uh, a theory and counseling that kind of talks about this. And we're going to kind of look at these marks just to really put a point on it. Why are we talking about maturity and why are we going to be looking at counseling in a church context What's the beautiful thing about the idea that God created us and made us is that God makes all of us on a trajectory. Your lives are on a trajectory. And I believe that that trajectory, where we're heading, isn't just age or older, but it's stepping more into who God created you to be. And there's lots of language, especially in the New Testament, that's interesting that says that when God's people, which is everyone, there's one God who created us all, step more into who they've been created to be, this really beautiful thing happens. Where I'm trying less to be you, and you're trying less to be me, and we're being ourselves, and we see this beautiful marriage of people working together to bring out who they were created to be. And the language that they use is the body of Christ, which is a helpful metaphor. That there's different ways that we engage in our body. That if we were to try, if the lungs were to become more like a liver, it would be catastrophic. I, I don't want my lungs doing liver functions. I want them doing lung functions. And so ultimately what that looks like is the first message that Jesus ever preaches is about the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God to come to earth, part of that involves us stepping into maturity and discovering more who we were created to be. And we're going to talk about this, but part of maturity is becoming more of yourself and worrying less about others, not worrying less about others, trying to be others less, doing that comparison game less, being more comfortable with this is who I am, this is who I was created to be. So The first thing we want to do is we want to talk through this theory called transactional analysis. And I don't know if you're excited about that, but I am. Uh, So let's see if that bleeds off a little bit. Transactional analysis is a counseling term that basically is the way that we engage in the world. And if you're here at the beginning of our last message series, Connie Baker, uh, who preaches um, part of the, the church and she preaches on occasion, she's a counselor and she's the one who introduced this to me and kind of talked more about how she uses it. But transactional analysis basically says that we exhibit different parts of ourselves as either a parent, an adult, or a child. And in all of our relationships and interactions with with each other, we kind of slide through those three different realities. So sometimes, and it can be adult to adult, you are talking to them, you're taking on a parental role as if you were the parent, and you're talking to them as, as if they were a child. Sometimes you take on the child mode and you're like, well, I I don't know. I can't do this thing. Would you help me? And you're responding to others as parent. And sometimes you switch wildly between the two. Um, One of my favorites, and I can do this because my wife isn't here, um, but because she's not me, I I do the same thing, but I can notice it more in her. So (laughs) let's say we're sitting down And sometimes my wife will be like, hey, can you get me some ice cream, please? She's taking on kind of the child role, like, please, I need help, would you help me? And I'm like, no, get your own ice cream. And she goes, come on, give me some ice cream. And like that, like it switches. We go from one to the other. And it's it's all in fun. I I'm not like you know I'm not trying to expose something like deep and dark about the nature of our relationship. And I'm like oh I'm so sorry I'll go get you the ice cream. It's like this fun kind of switch. But what it exposes at different times when we're looking for different things, we'll try on different identities to see if we can get them. Sometimes if we feel like it helps us, we'll take on a childlike posture towards the world. And if it doesn't work, we'll be like let's try something else. I'll try try the parent. And what we want to talk about is how those are demonstrated, how those are shared in the world. So the first thing to look at is we have kind of the parent-adult-child is to talk about the child orientation. The child orientation is very self-centric, which makes sense. If you think about a child, they kind of are their own world, and everything they see comes from their viewpoint and how they engage it. And usually it's, what do I want, and it's now, It has a lot of immediacy in what they're looking for. Now in transactional analysis, there's actually kind of two different ways you can demonstrate the child. Uh, So what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of look at an example in real life and how we would demonstrate this. So let's say you're walking down the street, downtown Portland, and you see someone, uh, it can be a male or a female, wearing very little clothing. They're wearing practically nothing. Now usually all of us have kind of thoughts and engagements. If you were in your kind of child state or your your child orientation towards the world, the adapted, which means uh, that you as a child have received the messages from your parents, you've internalized them, and now you are kind of parroting them, parroting them back out onto the world. You would be like, that's a bad idea. You should not be wearing that few amounts of clothes in public. That would be kind of the adapted child. It has kind of a shame connotation. You're like, I would never do that. Usually from your own, it's coming from you. It's centered in self and who you are and how you view and engage with them. The free child would look at someone wearing something and start taking off articles of clothing like, we can do that now? That's amazing. The free part of the child is like little inhibitions. What do I want to do and when do I want to do it? And we'll tend to enact that into the world kind of regardless of other people. Which, by the way, as we kind of talk through these different models, all of those orientations are helpful in some settings and unhelpful in other settings. So the orientation towards free to, like, this is what I want to do, it isn't always bad. And the adapted child, when you look at something, you say, huh, that doesn't seem to bear with this experience that I had being parented, getting information from my parent. That's not always bad either. But just kind of talking, this is a general orientation towards the world. Next, to look at the adult or the parent, a parent is very other-centric and it can look two different ways. So the first, if you were the controlling parent, is you would start taking off your coat or jacket and like go try and put it on them. Like you need to cover up immediately or maybe not try and cover up the other person, but you would cover the eyes of whoever you're walking with. If you're walking with someone else and you're like, don't look at them. That is not how we look in public. That is not how we dress. The nurturing would be more of the like sympathetic, like, oh, they look cold. Someone should tell them to not do that in public. Someone needs to help him. Someone needs to help her. They need to, who's, where are their parents? It's very much this idea of where you're trying to be helpful, but your help has nothing to do with the other person. It's all about your own orientation towards the world and how you see things. So it's others focused, both controlling and nurturing, kind of both look like controlling. They both have that bent and and orientation towards the world. So you're starting to see a little bit more. There are kind of different ways that we manifest. We can kind of be popping in between these. The last one is adult. And part of the reason why we call this message series adulting is adult sits in between that self-orientation And the other's orientation kind of being self-centric or other-centric and the the markers of the adult orientation towards the world is respect and awareness so it's very much wondering i i wonder why they're wearing those clothes that's not something i see every day i wonder what's going on and whereas a child in the the child free you would just start taking off clothes like me too Uh, the adult orientation would sit and ask questions. Huh, am I too warm? Do I want to take some layers of clothes off? Is there a different weather going on than I thought? No, I'm good. I'm wearing the proper amount of clothes right now. Or, yeah, I can take off my coat right now. I don't think I need to wear that anymore. What's really beautiful about this adult orientation towards the world is it is sitting in the world as a non-anxious presence. It's not just acting out of impulse, and it's not trying to control the actions and behaviors of others. It's sitting with, I see different things in the world, I hear different ideas, and I say, huh, what is that? Is that something that I want to pursue? Is that something I want to do? Or, no, I I don't think I want to do that. And what's really helpful about this model when we talk about maturity is we want to look at that adult lens towards the world as our mark of maturity. That God put us in the world with respect and awareness that we're not here alone, that there's other people there, but I need to respect who God created those other people to be. And my awareness leads me to ask more questions about, well, what's going on in your story? Tell me more about your life. Tell me more about what's happening. I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to get controlling. I don't have to get condemning. I can figure out more, well, what's going on here? What's happening? What's happening? Now, one of the things that's really interesting in the world, and part of the reasons why we're talking about this, this will be like a larger theme that we hit later in this. If you think about the political climate in our country today, um, think about how people respond out of these different orientations all the time. So a lot of times when someone posts something on on Facebook uh, that you don't agree with, people will come in with the parental tone. Like you can't say that. It's an irresponsible thing to say, on Facebook. How dare you do that? How dare you talk about that? Or, oh, you just don't know, do you? Here's the, the article you should be reading so you can have the good information. Or you have the adapted child who is condemning or approving things based on what everyone else around you is thinking or approving, or maybe what you were brought up thinking approving. And the child, um, it's easily the most entertaining Facebook engagements, um, but certainly not the healthiest. It's the, you're wrong and here's why, or yeah, you're right, and then you start chance. Usually the child loves chance um, when it comes to political conversations and engagements. What we wanna see is how do we step into these engagements and see the kind of divisive nature of things that are happening And more than that, uh, a conversation we're interested in is the dualistic nature of things that are happening in politics, which means if I say something here, what that means is, well, I vote this way, I think this way. And we don't even have to draw that connection or ask any questions. We can just make those assumptions. Whereas the adult is going to show up with awareness and say, tell me more about that. How did you arrive at that process? Now that doesn't mean that every idea that is shared is like valid or a good one. That's not an adult orientation towards the world. Some people are acting out of impulses or different desires and are sharing things that are hateful are harmful and are damaging. But we want to be able to engage with them, and I'm gonna put this caveat, at your level of safety that is good and healthy and right for you, this is a part of being an adult, you don't have to engage in every conversation. And I would say, especially for people who have undergone any kind of spiritual, mental, or physical abuse, if those things are being triggered, you do not have to wade into those waters and engage those conversations. In fact, I would suggest you don't for your own mental health and well-being. For understanding and becoming, that's part of recognizing and respecting the image of God that has been put in you. But if you're not being triggered in those particular ways, then to engage in conversation and say, tell me more about it. Help me understand this. Because from my vantage point, that, that doesn't make sense. Or this argument isn't really clicking. It isn't really connecting. So do you see how some of these, if our world, if our country demonstrated higher levels of maturity, I think it would create a lot of difference. I think it actually could create a lot of change. And I think it could be a huge pathway for us demonstrating more and more this kingdom of God that people that are seeking after Christianity are seeking and falling after Jesus. That's where the hope is that this is all heading. That we have this mutual thriving of all people where we respect and we're aware of who others are created to be and we're partnering with them, not seeking to seek and destroy and eliminate the bad people so we can get going with the good people. Because in the kingdom of God, those distinctions don't exist. There's no one that gets left behind in the kingdom of God. So engaging with them in healthy and mature ways is necessary for us to see the kingdom of God. And just like a little historical like, snapshot of this, um, he had lots of great things to say. He had lots of issues. But historically, a fascinating study is of Martin Luther, Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses. He was aware of all this corruption that was happening in the Catholic Church and said, these are some of the problems. These are some of the issues that are here. We have to address these things and led this amazing movement. As he got older in his life and he was creating and working out his theology, one of the key parts of his theology was we have to witness to the Jews. Because it's part of Martin Luther's own belief in theology that if the Jews were to convert to Christianity, this would bring about the second coming of Jesus. This would bring about the culmination of the kingdom of God. And Martin Luther did not have much success. So towards the end of his life, a lot of his writing and thinking and theology about the Jews was horribly anti-Semitic and laid a groundwork in Germany for a lot of things that happened later and came later. The reason why I bring that up is the path Martin Luther was walking at the beginning was good and healthy in this way of theology. But at a certain point, he had arrived at a theological point that some people could be left behind so we could get to the kingdom of God. That some people could be sacrificed to the side so we could get to the kingdom of God. If we ever start entertaining these thoughts, we're walking down incredibly dangerous paths. And right now in our country, Depending on which half, both halves would right now very likely be very happy to leave behind the other half. Maturity says we can't do that. Maturity says we have to engage in a different way and I think this is the call of Christ. I'm pretty confident that's the call of Christ. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step that back. That was a little too dipping a toe in like, I don't know, I think Jesus would be for bringing along everybody. I'm, I'm fairly confident. <laughs> so to put... A bow on it, maturity involves moving from self to others without losing yourself or trying to control others. Does that make sense? This pathway of maturity, if you just look at aging, a child has to move from the self-awareness, that that's the center of the world, to seeing others. But in that journey, you don't want to veer into trying to control other people, and you don't want to lose yourself. You are so important to bring to every story and every knowledge. So knowing who God created you to be is a Christian act. It's an act of Christian discipleship. It's not navel gazing. It's like it gets this bad rap. If you kind of discover who you are, it's like navel gazing, or you're being selfish, or you're you're just wasting time. No, it's incredibly important to know who God created you to be and how you are to helpfully engage the world. So we wanna look at a couple of different passages in Corinthians. So we're gonna look in 1 Corinthians this morning and kind of talk about this idea of maturity and wisdom is really fleshed out by Paul. Uh, To give you a little bit of context, 1 Corinthians is a letter, as is actually a lot of the New Testament. They're letters written by different authors. This one in particular uh, is ascribed to Paul. Paul was one who wrote a lot of letters. Uh, And if you're aware uh, Paul was actually originally Saul. He was someone who was deeply embedded in the Jewish religious system and wanted to eliminate Christianity as this fringe kind of offshoot thing that was happening, and he wanted to kind of crush it. Um, in the stories of scripture, it tells that uh, Saul, who later became Paul, was present at the stoning of Stephen, who is thought of to be the first Christian martyr. He has this amazing experience of Christ. Uh, This vision of Christ on the road where Christ says, why are you persecuting me? He's brought blind, and then he has this whole new awareness of, oh, Christ did come. Christ is a fulfillment, and he becomes one of the key evangelists of the early church. He travels all over starting churches, getting churches going, and writing them letters to encourage them, which, by the way, another mark of maturity is ability to change your mind when confronted with new information. And that's like happens in the Bible. People change their orientation towards the world because they encounter and discover new things. So if you think the same things that you thought 10 years ago and you're calling that a virtue, I would pump your brakes a little bit uh, biblically. Biblically, I'd say, we actually don't see that reflected a lot. There's something really healthy and beautiful about changing and evolving the ways that we engage in the world. And in fact, not just from being Jewish to becoming Christian, Paul demonstrates through his letters, shifts in his theology as he's writing different people in different circumstances and settings. And if you have beef with Paul, let's talk later. I get it. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to start looking in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs. Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is Paul at his best. And if that sounded like mumbly-gumbly word garbage, uh, I would encourage you to go back and really sit with it. Because Paul in his writing is very much building arguments and creating these ideas and he's stacking them. He's building them on each other as they go until he arrives at kind of this is the point. This is where we're arriving. Paul's writing to Corinth, and in Corinth, it's a very uh, metropolitan city in the Roman world. It's a center of trade. There's lots of new ideas and people going through uh, 12 different temples. uh, Archaeologically, we've discovered in Corinth, They had wide um, worshiping and religious practices, as well as ideas about the world, um, thoughts. And, And so what Paul is trying to say is, there's a kind of wisdom that's moving around about how the world works, and what he's saying is, that's stupid and bad, it's not what he's saying, but what he's saying is there's another kind of wisdom that Jesus brought that is true wisdom that basically this other wisdom of the world is different variations on the same theme. And the same theme that he's identifying is that greater levels of control and financial freedom are the path to liberation in this world. And if you look at most of the the messages that have come in our world today and certainly in the Roman world then, these are the messages we receive over and over and over again. Do you not have a high enough paying job? Do you not have an important enough title? Do you not have enough fame? Do you not have enough financial autonomy? If you don't have financial autonomy, then you're not free. You're in bondage. Do you not have enough gadgets or toys or things? Do you have, not have enough accomplishments as the other people in your life? Then you're not free. And the wisdom all tracks down this path that you have to accumulate more of, fill in the blank, to truly become free. And the path of Jesus was in direct opposition to that. It's the fascinating thing coming off our message series on power dynamics that Jesus was the most powerful person in every room Jesus ever walked into and yet never used that power for his own benefit, but used it to serve and help everyone else that was there. And in particular, Jesus went to the places that were outcast and seen as weak and extraneous in society and brought out the significance of these individuals in these people. This is the kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about. And he uses the cross as the ultimate sign of this wisdom. He's like, this doesn't make sense to anybody. He's saying the Jews rejected it and the Gentiles rejected it. Nobody thinks this path is a good idea, but he's inviting them in through a whisper. But do you see how it's better? Do you see how this system actually isn't working for anyone? The people at the top of the pyramid and the people at the bottom of the pyramid, it's not working for anybody. There's another way of engaging the world that's Better that marks this true wisdom of saying it isn't by violence and force and accumulating goods that that's how we dominate and that's how we become freedom. It's actually another path. It's another way. It's about seeing your brother and your sister differently. It's a better way. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 8, Paul continues in this way. He says, so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is interesting. It's a good perspective on Paul. When Paul starts leading this movement and getting in it, he is a day late and a dollar short. He didn't spend all the time with Jesus like the disciples had. He's playing catch-up at this point. And at this stage in history, Paul couldn't just run down to the local library, check out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and do quick read-ups, script notes, to figure out, oh, okay, well, how are we leading this Christian movement? And Paul had spent the entirety of his life investing himself in the Jewish way of thinking, the Jewish world and religion. That's where all of his power was. He said goodbye To all of that to come into this Christian understanding. He's saying if it depended on wisdom to be able to convince you this stuff was true, I wasn't going to be able to do it. And what's important about this is Paul is talking about facts, things that are going on, because there's a way of reading it where Paul is like being falsely humble. He's like, I'm no eloquent one. I may look at my incredibly eloquent speech that I'm writing to you right now in this letter, but I'm not eloquent. No, what Paul is saying is not that he doesn't have technical skill in writing or he's not a very intelligent person. When he says to talking about Christianity, he is playing catch up at a deep level. And if it was just about mentally understanding all of it, he was never gonna get to the place of being able to write letters, plant churches and encourage this movement forward. He was playing catch-up the entire time. And he's calling to and alluding to there's a different kind of wisdom here. And this is what's beautiful. That levels the playing field. Do you understand Christ crucified? Awesome. You're ready to go. You're ready to start the journey. You're ready to start into this path. Christianity isn't just another manifestation of the people that know the most are in charge and are the most important and everyone else doesn't. Have you met Christ crucified? Oh, you're ready to go. That experience of who Jesus is, which is picking another way than the path of power in this world, that's the starting point. And that is the bedrock of wisdom in the Christian story. So, as we talk about maturity, I want to talk about four marks of maturity that I think Paul is alluding to here. And just so you know, As we go through these four marks of maturity, my encouragement for you this week is that you would focus on one and to say, what's one mark of maturity that I can sit with and I can work on putting into practice on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis and thinking through? So I want to see what comes up for you as you hear these. First, I want to tell you is maturity seeks wisdom. Wisdom is one that is looking to gather perspectives and doesn't look to jump from new idea to new idea. Um, There's a certain flavor of wisdom that says, if you know a bunch of stuff about the newest idea, that's true wisdom. Um, But wisdom and, and maturity in wisdom is really sitting with, what are the stories of those that have come before us? And how does that influence, how does that speak into this present moment? Um, One of my favorite stories was we bought our house, like, after the housing market crashed, after 2008. And, like, we decided we were going to buy a house. It was the right house. It was the house we wanted. But I was like, will the housing market ever recover? It was a legitimate fear. Like, it seemed silly because we're not all that much later after I bought the house and, like, housing prices here in Portland are crazy, but at that moment, I had none of that information. And my realtor and the housing inspector, they were inspecting the house, and we were talking out back, and they were like, no, was, you know, great house, great bones, and they're like, yeah, it will increase in value, and it won't probably take like five, 10 years. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, well, this reminds me a lot of the big housing market crash in the 70s. And I was like, this has happened before? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, this happens a lot. There's a kind of wisdom, there's a kind of maturity that comes from experiencing different cycles in history and knowing while there are unique things about this cultural moment, this is not a new cultural moment. In the United States of America, what is happening right now in our world, there are new flavors, but this is not new. And wisdom, maturity that seeks after wisdom, is looking to gain those perspectives and gather those perspectives that are informed by history. Next, maturity embraces humility. Which isn't to say you think less of yourself, but that you would think of yourself less. Um, There's a kind of false humility that just requires um, thinking about yourself less saying, well, I'm not very good at things, I'm not very smart, I'm not very fill-in-the-blank. You focus on your inadequacies, and that makes you humble. Um, I would say that's actually that, that kind of humility, that false humility, is just like active insulting of God. You're just picking apart God's creation. The thing that God created in you to be, you're like, yeah, but this is why it's not very good. True humility is that because I know who God created to me, me to be and I have confidence in that, I don't have to think about it and fret about it and worry about it. I don't have to worry about, am I enough? I can just start to engage in the world and I can see other people and I can see who they are because, yeah, I do have shortcomings. No, I'm not the whole picture. No, I don't have all those things. And there's a freedom in that awareness. You're not enough to be everything to everyone, and thank God, but you are enough in who you were created to be. As you become more familiar with that, there can be a sense of humility. And you can see it in Paul's writing. Paul's saying like, look, I write letters, I do this thing, this is what I do well, but it doesn't come from this expansive wisdom or because I'm so great at all these things. Like, this is the only thing I can do. Like, this is the thing I'm good at. So what would it look like for you this week to not think less of yourself, but to think less of yourself. To be able to see and engage with others because you have a grounding of a sense of who you are. Three is that maturity embraces gratitude. This is the movement from self to others is that appreciation is greater than entitlement. Um, I have two young boys and what becomes really interesting is when you start uncovering through their language what they think they, like, just deserve by existing. And there's something really beautiful in that. I don't want to crush that. I'm like, good for you. Yeah, you're like, I deserve things. I exist. Uh, that's actually a good foundation. But maturity builds from that and says that I find greater and greater levels of Gratitude. How can I be grateful for this day? How can I be grateful for this meal? How can I be grateful for this moment? Because I'm not promised, I'm not entitled, I don't deserve any one particular thing. Um, And there's a way where most of us engage in the world where it's about what I deserve and anything less than that is failure and bad. But how do we receive these kind of the baseline of things and have a gratitude about it, to be grateful for it? Um, And just so you know, maturity, uh, uh, the maturity that leads to this kind of gratitude isn't just swallowing abuse and awful things and calling it good. Uh, In many ways, that kind of gets mischaracterized as a kind of gratitude, and it actually becomes an effective tool of talking about power dynamics of powerful people to tell people who have no power to deal with awfulness and call it good. That's not what I'm talking about. Gratitude is to demonstrate appreciation for the good things that are a part of life and not imagine that any part of it is what you're entitled to. But everyone is entitled to be seen, heard, and respected as an autonomous human being made in the image of God. In the Christian conversations, that's the baseline, okay? Last one that we want to look at, and by the way, maturity also doesn't just make lists of three Because you know what? In churches, everything has to be in threes. And sometimes it needs to be fours. This morning it's four. (laughs) Maturity embraces your God-given identity. You are not your greatest criticism or your greatest compliment. This is part of understanding who we are. And this is actually tied a lot to that humility. Your God-given identity says, a lot of times we try and base our identity off of what's being reflected back to me by everyone else. And a lot of times if someone say good things about us, we feel great about ourselves. People say bad things, we feel bad about ourselves. But when we realize that neither one of those are the identities that God has given you and it's not truly who you are, that you'll be able to receive them, you don't have to tell people not to say things to you, but you can evaluate them with respect for the other person and respect for yourself, and let go of the things that aren't true. A lot of times your greatest criticisms and your greatest compliments are a reflection of the insecurity of the people around you. It's not a definition of who you are. And a part of maturity is beginning to know the difference between the two and letting some of those things go and seeing with who is has God created me to be. So my encouragement, again, is that you would be able to sit this week and say, what's one aspect of maturity? Whether it be humility, sitting with your God-given identity, whether it be seeking out wisdom or practicing gratitude, what's one step of maturity that you can lean more into to see that you would discover more of who God created you to be and as we know and understand that, to be mobilized to move in the world. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna Get on out.